0: Welcome oh, to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, and we have another one of our special biblical episodes, which may one day be a sort of paid thing that you'd go through a paywall to get, but for now I'm just giving them away for free, just very generously. And it's our second Exploring Genesis edition, and of course we have the Reverend Jamie Franklin. Welcome back to the show, Jamie. Thanks, Nick. Is that what it's called, Exploring Genesis? The first one I called Exploring Genesis Part 1, okay. so I'm thinking about just going crazy and calling this Exploring Genesis Part 2. Yeah. Or I might call it Cain and Abel because what we're thinking of doing today is doing Cain and Abel and then Noah or we might just do Cain and Abel because there yeah. might be so much.
1: And and talking about the Nephilim as well. That's the other thing we've got to do, isn't it? And talking so about the Nephilim. I don't want to miss of, it, miss the Nephilim.
0: Some angels came down and bred with humans and it all kicked off in a nutshell. So yeah, we might yeah. get onto that. And hopefully yeah. this will be entertaining for people who are not Christian but also it, People did really like the last one. People said it was enlightening. Some people said they've been back to church because of it. Wow. So that was great. So we're back doing another one. That's and, good, um, man. That's good. Let, let, let's crack on with it. I, I thought we'd start with Cain and Abel. So obviously, I mean, where to start? I'll just I'll just start with the start. I'll just read it. So it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So obviously knew meaning meaning had sex. So I mean, as David Pawson pointed out, that the tree of knowledge really is the tree of experience because knew is that. Yeah, in that yeah, exact definition. That's what we said last there's time. Anyway. A, there's a
1: great translation of this, which I came across in the new international version, where it translates it as now. Uh, I think it says now Adam made love to Eve, his wife, and I thought that was quite hilarious. Actually, quite a hilarious. very like White <laughs> version. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, a R- rendering that. of the Hebrew. Yeah, Adam. Yeah, made I think I'll love. stick with new <laughs> made love. <laughs>
0: We're in Sunday school, and we're sort of like, yeah, we can't be saying that. There's a big graphic. So now Adam knew his Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. I've got to read this so that I'm still in the mic. Let me try and read it here. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Go for it, man. It's bore Cain I saying,
0: I have produced a man with the help of the Lord, and there the Lord is capitalized, meaning, so it means it's Yahweh in the original. Oh, I've got some stuff on that later. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And it's been pointed out probably people like Jordan Peterson, that shepherds then were pretty tough people. They weren't sort of the people we think of them from children's books now. It was a tough, tough life. So a a shepherd was someone pretty tough. But what do you think about Cain being a worker of the ground? Because that comes up later where it's like a motif. His brother's voice screams from the ground. Because he's put him in the ground, and he's a worker of the ground, and now the ground—he's cursed that the ground won't yield to him anymore. So, is there anything there, or is it just a motif?
1: No, no. I think, yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I've not really thought about it before. Um, in terms of the thing about the ground, yeah. No, I think that's very good. I mean, Peterson talks about, doesn't he? How this is a kind of, you know, an archetype of the uh, of the the eternal battle between herdsmen and and people. You know, uh, what, what would they be called? Like people who grow things no
0: yeah the nomadic versus the stable farms i've also heard that as well
1: yeah 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 so there's there's that but yeah i mean yeah that that seems to that seems to make sense doesn't it um yeah and then and then i i guess i mean i don't know whether you want me to get get onto this straight away but the that comes up again doesn't it when you have the two sacrifices and cain's sacrifice is an offering of the fruit of the ground Um, yeah where is it yeah Oh, sorry, did you... Yeah, no we'll was get there. on to that.
0: We'll get on to that because that's, yep. so, that's so massive. I was just getting slightly ahead of myself and asking you about the, the ground bit. And I was looking for a smaller bookmark, but I didn't have one. This, there's a lot of logistics in this podcast. So <laughs> let's press on and go. Yeah, Cain, a work of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord, again capitalized, an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So this is a key... Part or one of the key parts. Now, why did he have no regard is, is one big question. Like, it, was it just that's life sometimes, you do things right and, and it doesn't go well and no one cares? Or was it that there was something weaker or worse about Cain's offering?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, Peterson's very uh, ambivalent about this, isn't he? He sort of says, well, you know, it, it may have been that there was something worse or something better, but maybe he was just not favored by God. I mean, I think that, you know, in terms of the actual, the, the real answer, I mean, you know, Peter does these kind of interesting, you know, well, maybe this and maybe that, you know. But but the real answer, I think, is is in the text, you know, because it talks about Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. So it's just a bare offering, right? And then in verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portion. So I think that that's the key. I mean, some people think that it's to do with, you know, blood versus, um, you know, crops or whatever, soil. Um, you know, like blood is better than than crops, but that's that wouldn't really be very fair on Cain because Cain was a worker of the ground. So it's actually, I think, to do with that contrast between an offering and the firstborn. Um, so Cain just gives an offering, whereas Abel gives the gives of the firstborn of his of his of his flock. Um, and that would have spoken to the original audience, because you know if you if you believe as I do that Moses wrote these books. Then, you know, he was writing um, to a people that would have understood that in the sacrificial system at the time, you know, you offered the the best of what you have to the Lord and you don't just offer some, you know, you don't just offer whatever as as Cain did. So I think that that seems to be be what's going on here. And so there's a critique of a kind of, you know, half-baked... half-baked kind of arrogant approach to the worship of god a kind of self-created religion on his own terms he's he's approaching the lord on his own terms you know in probably quite an arrogant entitled way whereas abel's offering is an offering you know humility from the heart uh, and and therefore he's offering his best um so it seems to me that that's that's the case there
0: um (laughs) i was wondering if uh, god just hated vegetarians you know, he's like, you bring yep. the meat, you just bring some blooming fruits and vegetables, yep. what's that yep. all about? But yeah, he, so I've had a few ideas of my own, but but then if you look at if you look at Pawson's, I'm going to get onto my ideas in, in the next line, but if you look at Pawson's idea on that, it's, it's actually because God accepted Abel's sacrifice because Abel had learned from his parents that the only sacrifice worthy of God is a blood sacrifice, the result of a life taken in death. And he's referring to the earlier part in Genesis where God covered the sin and shame of his parents, of Adam and Eve, by killing animals, so Adam and Eve wore those hides as clothing. Hence, the animal sacrifice. So he's saying, "Oh, God respects animal sacrifice." That's that's Porson's idea. I mean, that's mean?
1: true. I mean, God clearly, you know, he respect, he demands animal sacrifices in various contexts in the Mosaic law. But Cain is a worker of the ground, so he doesn't have any animal sacrifice to offer. You know, and I think the contrast. I mean, you can just see it right here in the text: an offering of the fruit of the ground on the part of Cain, and the firstborn of his flock on the on the part of. Um, able. Now, if Cain had offered the first fruits of his, of his, uh, of the fruit of the ground, then the author would have written that down and said it. But that that's the contrast right. that the one was not the first fruits and right. the other was the firstborn. I think so. That that to me makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: He half asked. Yeah. It. it was just. A, yeah, it makes it, ma- it an makes an miles more offering. sense to me because how could Cain offer
1: a blood sacrifice when he didn't have any he didn't have any blood sacrifices to give. You know, that's uh, in the sacrificial system as well, in the Mosaic law. Great point. There's provision given for people who can't afford to give, like, you know, lambs or animals. You know, they can give lesser animals or they can give um, offerings of crops and things like that. So, you know, in the sacrificial system, the Lord takes into account the economic situation of people who offer things. So I think Paulson's one sounds very nice, and in a way, it's sort of is theologically very apt but I don't know whether it's really supported here I don't really think that that's necessarily the point of what's going on
0: you're saying if I were a shepherd I would give a lamb yeah yeah you're right I mean Paulson he does say things with extraordinary confidence (laughs) yeah because of this and I've just said that (laughs) now you'll have to check if that's actually the case yeah but it's very convincing
1: my favorite part in any of the things I've listened to him by so far so far is when he says there's something what does he say there's something particularly inhuman about an old person and a cat <laughs> <laughs> and what he means is like it's you know it's not great when you're an old person with no friends and you know and you've only yeah. got a cat. But it just sounded really just funny, you know. He just says that by itself. Something very yeah. Uh, it's kind He's from
0: the north, old school. And one of my favorites is um, is when he just says. Uh, is it, when he says uh, he talks about Yahweh and he said that, that were, people thought that was Jehovah and he goes but that's a mistake because it's actually pronounced Yahweh so he just this is the entire <laughs> Jehovah's Witness uh, movement there just in, in one line yeah. that's a mistake and they're absolute <laughs> idiots so yeah he was an old school uh, northern guy but, yeah. but it, it, and by the way in case anyone doesn't know what we're referring to in case I forgot to mention that's the David Pawson Unlocking the Bible series which we very much focused on last time yeah uh, yeah and just so that's just a quick a quick uh, reminder of that
1: just to come back on this thing about you know you said this thing about the worker of the ground that's quite an interesting idea actually which i'd not thought about um but that motif you are right you know obviously the ground is cur- uh, cursed and i don't know whether you mentioned this earlier but in, cha- in verse seven you know when it talks about sin crouching at the door that's interesting isn't it the sin is like down crouching and coming up and kind of like presumably pulling you know, at, you know it's, it's there ready to sort of pull you down and that's i've been really reading the, reading the um I don't know whether you've ever come across Matthew Pageau's book on Genesis. Have you ever come across it? It's called *The Language of Creation*. He's he's Jonathan Pageau's brother, but he talks about this the, the the spatial metaphor of like heaven and earth. You know, heaven being the realm of um, spirit, God, enlightenment, wisdom, and so on, and earth being you know material, um, you know, density, corporeality, and and I, I suppose as well potentially sin. So it's interesting that you've got that image of like, you know. Cain is a worker of the ground, and also Sin is crouching at the crouching at the door. You know, he's down there. Sin is down there, ready, like a person, ready to come and sort of grab you and pull you down. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting there. It's an interesting yeah Yes, day. well,
0: Jamie, I got an A at English A-level, so you've got to watch out for me in these little motifs. I will find them. Cain, a worker of the ground, yeah. And then it says... The voice for your brother's blood, which I'll get onto, is crying to me from the ground. And then later, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. So, yeah, there's definitely something going on there. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Good observation. I am
0: an MA in literature, but I didn't mention that.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I won't, um, I won't mention my degrees. Don't need to. No, don't mention them. Let's keep them out of it completely.
0: <laughs> um, you've got too many. The podcast will be too long. Um, so, and you went to Oxford as well, so it's like proper degrees. Only, only, as,
1: only as a postgraduate, I hasten to add.
0: Yeah, yeah let's let's put that in um so in the course of time cain brought the lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and abel also brought of the first one of his flock and their fat portions and the lord had regard for abel and his offering but for cain and his offering he had no regard so cain was very angry or wrath in the king james version mm. and his face fell the lord said to cain why are you angry and why is your face fallen if you do well will you not be accepted and if you do not do well sin is crouching at the door let's just stop there for a sec so I love this line. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And I've been thinking about this line a lot. I've been thinking about it in the light of another theological work, *The Devil Wears Prada*. Right. Because if you watch, if you watch the film *The Devil Wears Prada*, I've never seen it. No. Tell me. Tell me. Well. The character played by Anne Hathaway, Andrea, Andrea, or Andrea, as Mel Streep calls it, mm-hmm. is she's sort of complaining. She's not. She's the job's not going that well. She's being told off a lot, but she thinks she's trying really hard. And she says to Stanley Tucci's character, Nigel, she goes, "But you know, I'm trying." And Nigel goes, "Be serious, Andy. You are not trying. You are whining." <laughs> and it's this great moment you couldn't have in movies anymore. An older man telling a younger girl she's whining and just needs to get on with it. And he is gay, which mitigates somewhat against that, but probably not enough. So anyway, he's saying you're whining. And she goes, okay. And then she realizes what she's got to do. She's got to make a bigger effort. She's got to wear the clothes that the boss likes. Really embrace the job Mm. rather than just sort of deign to work there, as he puts it. And she she thinks she's above it. She thinks she's better than it. But actually, there's very few things you're better than if if done properly, really. Mm. So my thing here is, if you do well, will you not be accepted? It's like, you'd know you had done well because it would have been accepted. You know what I mean? It's like, Mm. you'll know when you've done enough because you'll you'll get there. Anything else is just complaining and BS, basically. That's what I took from that. What do you think?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, because I've been listening, I've, I've been listening to that Peterson lecture over the past day, uh, having, having, um, you know, you, you sent it over for me to listen to. So that's really on my mind, but it is, it is hard to not see this as a kind of, I mean, clearly there's kind of theological things that we could talk about here, but there's a sort of, there's a, there's a very clear moral lesson here, isn't there, whether it's in, in terms of the worship of God or just in our, in our everyday lives. But I suppose the point is, is that the Lord is offering Cain a way back, right? So he can take heed of what the Lord is saying to him and accept that he's made a mistake in the way that he is approaching things, or he can persist in this behaviour and see what happens. But, you know, obviously the problem is that, you know, sin is crouching at this door, his desire is contrary to you and you must rule over it. So there's agency here for Cain. It's not like he, he has to do this, you know. Um, it's not like he has to persist in this way. And it does you know it does speak to us very deeply, doesn't it that we have we have opportunities in life where we can you know in a in a religious sense we can repent of our sin but also in general we can you know we can acknowledge our mistakes and say sorry and try and fix them to the best of our abilities or we can persist in arrogance and continue you know the path that we're on and and things will just get worse and worse and worse and they'll spiral and and obviously, we can see we can see what happens. Oh, can I read a can I read a quote from this? Um, and I'm using an embargoed commentary. I can't say what it is, right? So I'm not going to say. But I'm using. I've got a really good commentary which hasn't been published yet. But it's a quote from a, a writer called Francis Schaeffer, and he's a he's a you know a man who's dead now. But he was a an evangelical kind of intellectual, I suppose. But the, this is an important point about this whole thing, you know, because in in Cain and Abel, we can kind of see these sort of two strands of humanity now this i don't think this is meant at all like in a racial sense or anything like that or a predetermined sense like anyone can be either of these lines so you've got you know abel who's the righteous cain who is the unrighteous and then later on abel is replaced by seth as it were but the point is about the way we approach god you know and, and the way we the way we worship God, the way we imagine God to be. Anyway, this this quotation from Francis Schaeffer is a good one. It said, from this time on in the flow of history, there are two humanities. The one humanity says there is no God or it makes gods in its own imagination or it tries to come to the true God in its own way. The other humanity comes to the true God in God's way. There is no neutral ground. And I, I think as well, the other thing that occurs to me to say with this thing about Cain and Abel is, you, you, you know, these are individuals, but they also, and they apply to individuals, but it also applies... You know societally as well i would say and i think you know our society is clearly going the way of cain by ignoring the things of god and 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 um, making decisions or taking directions which don't take any heed of god and god's ways and you know we always have a way out we always have a, an opportunity to turn back and to to rediscover wisdom or we can just carry on and, and find out what's going to happen and you know in this case it's 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 bad obviously in in the Cain and Abel story and it will be bad for us as individuals and as a society if we persist in sin and and godlessness and of course we're going to see the sort of degradation of the world as as not only Cain but humanity in general kind of moves in this
0: direction so okay I've got some other thoughts on the two lines which but but at first maybe I wanted to check and and see what you thought to this when we talk about if you do well will you not be accepted I, I saw this completely different translation that sort of Threw that off completely, which was uh, on Wikipedia. I'm not sure exactly where they got it from. It said, Why are you incensed and why is your face fallen? For whether you offer well or whether you do not, at the tent flap sin crouches, and for you it is longing, but you will rule over it. So in this version, whether you do well or not, it, the same thing will happen. Uh, so sin will be there either way. So that's a completely different reading where he, he has sort of. No agency, it's just it's going to be the same whatever is offering. Really? That throws it off completely. You don't have a... Yeah, but I couldn't figure out where they got that from. Yeah. It's just, it, doesn't, it was someone else's translation. It I doesn't
1: think. say which translation it
0: is. I tried to look at the footnote, and then it, it, it said something, but I, I didn't really get it. So um, it, that would change it completely, but then most people don't go with that. So, so what is your take on sin is crouching at the door?
1: Sin is crouching at the door, I mean, I, I just think that that means you know, it's, I mean, it's an interesting image, isn't it? So is it crouching, I don't know, on the other side of the door that you walk through, it's right there, you know, and it will spring upon you and you have to master it. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Is that there's a, there's a confrontation with sinful desire coming one way or another. So, you know, the sin is, the sin is there. It's going, you have to, you have to reckon with it and you can either allow it to overcome you or you can overcome it. And that's, you know, there in my, I'm, looking at the English Standard Version, you must rule over it. It's interesting, I've also got the NIV, which in a sense is a less literal translation, but it says you must master it. And that's a, that's a, an interesting way of thinking about it. But essentially it's like this kind of personification of sin, uh, like sin is a kind of being almost, like a spiritual being maybe. And that, that comes up, you know, that sort of idea that sin is not just a sort of concept, but a, a sort of spiritual power with its own sort mm. of ontological status. Is something that comes up over and over again. I actually wrote an essay once in, on uh, Romans chapter five, where the apostle Paul speaks about sin and death entering the world. You know, Romans five uh, talks; uh, he talks that way, um, like they're actual kind of powers that rule over the world. So, it's a sort of personification of sin. You know, you could take you could take that literally or, or not, as the case may be. But that's kind of the way I see it. Yeah.
0: And in the King James Version, just so we have loads of versions, it's sin lieth at the door. So it's very similar. And what what does it say after that? There's a devil waiting outside your door, which is obviously nicked from this. Um, What does it say after that? It says, And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. So unto thee shall be his desire is actually quite clear. That's sin trying to act upon you, I would say. And what's interesting, I was going to ask you as well, uh, sin is crouching at your door. The next line in the English Standard Version is, it's desire is contrary to you, but they, the word contrary is the same word where they say or towards, yeah. which is the same word when Eve's desire, may, you know, may your desire be contrary to your husband when yeah. he, he curses Eve, God yeah. curses Eve, as we discussed last time. <clears throat> but, but weird, it can also mean towards, and yeah. towards seems more likely in this context.
1: Yeah, like adversarially, I think it kind of means like that, like a clash, is the way it seems to me. By the way, uh, have you ever heard Metallica's version of Love a Man by Nick Cave? no oh you should look it up you should look it up nick i know how much you like metal
0: i love metal but i'm glad you got that the song was lover man so obviously you're a nick cave fan as well <laughs> yeah, yeah but you wouldn't have got that just from that one lyrical yeah, I've reference got it. i've
1: got it man i know what you're talking about
0: so hopefully the listener has some idea what we're talking about. We're talking about the Bible. And now we're talking about metal and the rock singer. It's all linked. It's Pop all linked. And no, no, but I mean, no,
1: this is a serious academic subject. It's um, uh, biblical studies. It's called like uh, biblical reception, you know, where you go through and you look at the way the Bible has been uh, received into culture through the arts, for example. And, you know, that's a good example. You know, there's a devil oh, waiting inside the door. Yeah, yeah,
0: definitely. Um, all right. So I, th- I think that's all I want to say on that for now. And then um, and then let me press on then. So, it's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Yeah. And we can think about Tom Waits as there as well. Cain slew Abel, killed him with a stone. So, uh, if you want to do another musical reference. So, Cain's... that scene on his Bone Machine album. Anyway, Cain spoke to Abel and his brother... And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Which is amazing because that phrase is still used today. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Which I love that. I mean, that's so good. That's Mm -hmm. such a great line. Mm -hmm. It's such a strange line. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And it's incredibly similar in in the King James. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So he kills him and the voice of his blood is crying out from the ground and he denies it, of course, which is even worse. And, um, and that's when it says, When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold and the lord put a mark on cain lest any who found him should attack him so there's so much there but i mean the the murder itself the, the denial of it and then this the the curse the the the, the, the 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 ground won't yield to you anymore and then so you're sort of going out of the kind of agricultural world you're sort of forced into the urban world which we might get onto to yeah, in a minute. Yeah. and then and then that's that that and then, and then the other part of the curse, which is quite strange to me, he, he, the fact that he, he doesn't allow people to kill him. It's like, I'm not gonna allow people to kill Cain. It's like, only, perhaps it's only God that can make these judgments. So no one else gets to kill him. And then there'll be revenge upon them sevenfold if, if they even try, if they, if they do kill him. What's all that about?
1: Well, as you say, there's a lot here, isn't there? I mean, I, I think that one of the things that we need to recognize is the, the link between the section we've just read and then, I mean, the section before the section we've just read and then the section we've just read. So you've got a situation where Cain is offering, um, you know, inappropriate worship to God. And I think the implication is quite clear that there's a link between, you know, an inappropriate view of God an inappropriate approach to God. And then this sort of the darkening of one's heart and mind that follows. So I think that that's an important that's an important point there. These are these these things aren't unrelated. It's because Cain has gone down this path of, of arrogance and pride and denial of his sin and wrongdoing that he then further compounds that by by killing Abel. You know, so why does he kill Abel? Because he's sort of stuck in this, I don't know, this sort of, this world where, you know, God is fundamentally unjust and he hasn't been treated fairly. And so he's just going to kind of lash out and kill, you know, which doesn't really make any sense on on any level, but it's a kind of, you know, well, it's just, it's just what he, he feels like doing. It will somehow uh, bring some kind of validation or justification to him in some way. And then you've got this yeah you know, as you say this this these these phrases which are so resonant you know i mean it's interesting isn't it in um in peter's lecture he says that the cain and abel story is the most profound story he's ever read anywhere which is amazing really and one of the things he says which is again interesting is he talks about the way these are really the first human beings so this is kind of the epitome of humanity we're talking about here because you know adam and eve they're not real they are human beings but they're not like in like us they're created by god and you know, especially at a certain age, and so these people, Cain and Abel, they come from a woman. You know, they're born of a woman. Anyway, so am I my brother's keeper? It's an amazing line, isn't it? And you think about it, and you think, what did Cain even mean by that? You know, because of course he's his brother's keeper. You know, your brothers, and so Cain, he 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 is born first, and then Abel is born second. So Cain's responsible for his brother. Of course he's his brother's keeper. So what? why is he saying this? You know? He's he's so sort of delusional that he's he's lost all sense of of family loyalty or I don't know, he just comes across like a like a you know, like a person you you can't have re- very much respect for.
0: It's uh, a sort of petulant teenager line as well, isn't it? He's giving sass to yeah. so God, one what am I his keeper, how yeah. do I know? Yeah, which but is you, just
1: But he is, you know, so he's he's failing on sort of every level. He's failing kind of theologically. um, He's failing morally. But then he's failing in that kind of sense of not being able to recognize what his duties and his responsibilities are. And again, the reason I think this is so profound is because we can see ourselves in this and we can see humanity in this. And then and then again, you have this repetition of the sin of, of Adam when he when he's confronted with his failure and his sin you know, his failure to take responsibility, his sin, he excuses himself. And then Cain does exactly the same thing. You know, he basically says, well, he lies. I don't know. So I'm not, it's not my responsibility anyway. And I don't know, but he does know. So he's just denying what he's done. So it's like this, it's like this progression, you know, and it's so, again, it's so true, isn't it? That as we, as we sin and as we try and cover it up and then we sin more, try and cover it up and we involve ourselves in a kind of deceptive web and we can't possibly break free from it. Um, and, and, and it gradually it gradually gets worse and worse and, and spirals down and down and down into, into chaos and destruction. So I think there's something um, deeply, deeply profound about that. And, it, and again, um, you know, the, the, the point is that we can always come out of it as well. I mean, this story is really all about Cain, if you think about it. I mean, Abel just does the right thing and then he's killed. He doesn't really have very much agency in the story. The story is all about Cain. We're supposed to see ourselves in this story um, yeah, and then the thing about well, you know, so Cain is punished by the Lord, but the Lord also preserves him as well. And I mean, we can get on to talking about what happens next after this. But I think the point is, is that God is showing His grace here, you know, because even even Cain and his descendants, as it were, um, will be will be given the chance of being redeemed and being saved. Um, you know, God is God is very gracious, and so when Cain, even Cain, a murderer, asks for mercy, he's given it by God. So you can see, I think the the point there is that um, that God is 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 simply merciful, and he he's giving him even now, even now after all of this, the possibility of of redemption. So I think I th- I kind of think that that's that's the point there. He's he's protecting Cain, even though Cain is. It's so simple. And then I think the other thing as well, just to say here, is that, you know, God's judgment, and this is a topic obviously we'll come back to over and over again because this is, you know, all these stories are about judgment. But you can see the purpose of God's judgment here, which is to wake Cain up, right? Because otherwise he's just gonna persist in this message in this in this type of behavior. He's hardened in his sin and his his deceitfulness. And so the, the, it's the only thing that god can do is to judge him in order to wake him up and bring him back so you could even say that this this yeah it's a it's a judgment but this judgment is done in love you know to to open his eyes to the reality, and again, you can kind of see this all the way through, through Scripture, is that when God brings judgment, uh, it's often to, it's often to wake, people, wake people up and to get them to reckon with their sin. I mean, a, 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 an example that springs to mind is the sin of David, you know, when he sins with Bathsheba and then has her husband killed. Uh, you know, the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to tell David a story which moves his heart and convicts him. Um, And he is punished severely for it. But part of the reason was to restore David, you know, to open his eyes and to wake him up. So there's also something there about God's judgment, I think, which is very true as well. Mm.
0: Yeah. All right. Loads of stuff there. I mean, yeah, Adam blames Eve, as you said, even though you could say Eve took the fruit and, you know, it wasn't Adam's fault, but as the head of the house, he should have checked and, you know, he just... So God says, why did you just go along with it? So he blames Eve, which goes very badly. Also reminds me a little bit of Peter denying... Yeah, cries three times. These kind of things don't go well in the Bible. Denying responsibility does not go well in the Bible. This is what we learn here. You can
1: see why Jordan Peterson likes these stories so much because they, you know, they chime so well with his sort of message about, you know, tidy room and so on.
0: Absolutely, the ultimate clean, clean your bloody room, (laughs) Cain. I mean, and and yeah, and 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 with the sin crouching, I mean, yeah, Cain is really just isn't he exhibiting? He's exhibited arrogance, laziness. Now it's it's also resentment and envy against his brother. And I do understand having a brother who. Was the favourite. There is an element of, of, of resentment about that if you're not careful. Yeah. So this is obviously, this is partly what's happening here, isn't it? It's a kind of classic tale of sibling yeah. resentment. Is,
1: is there something there which is, is sort of, it speaks to human nature, doesn't it? Which is that it's almost like the closer somebody is in proximity to you, the, the more they're a potential rival as well, I think. You know, it's often the case with friends, isn't it? If you're friends with similar interests maybe you have the same job or the same kind of career path or something like that that's often much harder isn't it to to bear if somebody's kind of beating you and they're similar to you so I I suppose the brother's thing is is you know nobody is closer to you than than your brother in 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 that sense that your brother basically is like another version of you and they're just beating you because they're just better than you that's terrible you know that's a terrible situation to be in so I think we can all relate to that.
0: In my own life, I was never competitive with my brother because we were so different. He was in—he got an A in physics and maths. So I got an A in English and history. And we sort of went very separate paths. Yeah. He does financial regulation, I do whatever the heck I do. Very, very different. Like wildly different people. And and we actually were never competitive in that nasty way a lot of brothers are. And actually, when I I got better than him at tennis a few years ago, and didn't even like beating him. But one thing, but what I did resent was the favour of sort of the, my, my dad where like my brother was older, my dad was a big tennis fan, even though he's working class background and he would play tennis with us, but he'd only hit with my brother and he'd make me hit with my mum on the other side. Mm. And it was like, and I'd be like, why can I never hit with my dad? Cause it would be a lot better for me. You know, mm. no offense to my mum, my dad was better. So, but he always just, he only wanted to hit with my brother and I hated that. Yeah. So, it's, so it's similar to God here. It's kind of like the, the favor of God is what they're trying to get. And that's what causes him to resent his brother so much. Yeah. Because yeah. he's fallen out of favor. And, it, and it's not Abel's fault because he's just being able. As you say, he just, he's just there sort of innocently giving this offering. with you know, well, There's no yeah. indication that he's doing anything wrong. Well, he's
1: doing everything right, isn't he? He's making the appropriate sacrifices to God and presumably, therefore, in his life as well. So he's doing everything right. So he's showing Cain up. You know, and that's why Cain hates him. So I guess that's why he kills him. I suppose that's the answer to my question, isn't it? He kills him because yeah. he's showing him up. You know,
0: yeah yeah and I think it's slightly different from my tennis analogy because my dad was doing the wrong thing and uh, <laughs> and uh, my brother would push let me sometimes hit with him but but um
1: so so can we just say just before we move on because this is something mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether it fits in here or not but but I think we're going to miss the we're going to lose the the motive of sacrifice when we move on which is fine because that's where it goes but you know this thing that that Peterson says about about sacri- like this story is all about making the proper sacrifices so that you know things are more likely to go well with you and um, it was it was interesting to me listening. I don't know whether it was that one you sent me or another one. I listened to quite a few, but it was interesting to me because sometimes when you're listening to those Peterson lectures, you're sort of thinking to yourself, well, um, what is Jordan Peterson actually, you know, what, his, what is his attitude to the Bible? You know, what does he actually believe about the Bible? Does he believe, I mean, I don't really think he believes the Bible is divinely inspired or anything like that, but he thinks that kind of geniuses wrote it. You know, that's it, these people when. I, I'm hesitant to do my impression of him because I know yours is so, you know, legendarily brilliant. But, like, you know, <laughs> these people weren't idiots, they were geniuses, you know, and and well, uh, geniuses? They were, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. But it, and he never hmm. quite comes out with it explicitly. But it was interesting in that lecture, I did get a flavor for what he was where he's coming from, um, where he's saying. You know, people have noticed, you know, he reads out a bit from I think it was probably a draft version of Twelve Wolves for Life, but he's sort of saying, you know, over the years, you know, people have realized uh, you know, they first we learned to speak and use tools and stuff, and then and then we realized that, you know, if we make sacrifices, if we make the proper sacrifices, things would go well for us. And then, you know, sacrifice became a motif and blah blah blah. And and I think the point he was making is that like we as humanity, in in you know, millennia past have understood the significance of the concept of sacrifice and then written it into our mythologies, of which the Bible is one. And this is this is why you get these kind of stories, you know, and this is why sacrifice is such a major motif. And he doesn't again he never really finishes the thought through. He never really kind of goes through and, and says, and that's what the Bible is and that's all it is. But it's actually it's very similar to it reminded me of um Martin Heidegger's theological critique of religion, where he says, you know, that what we... And, and this is actually something that the, the German theologian, Ludwig Feuerbach, also said, who's basically an atheist, is it, what we do is, is we kind of take concepts or ideas that we observe in the world, and we sort of project them upwards to, you know, to the, to the skies or to the heavens or whatever. So what, what it sounded to me like Peterson was saying is that we've discovered the significance of sacrifice, the concept of sacrifice or how important that is in human life and so we've kind of theologized it and turned it into a religious motif and then we've actually in in christianity and this isn't what he says explicitly but it's kind of the implication in christianity what you actually then end up with is god himself becoming a sacrifice so this kind of perfect well, this, this this sort of the highest concept in religion becoming sacrifice, and then that being almost like literally applied to God, so that God Himself becomes a sacrifice, and then you see that in other religions as well, you know, or, or maybe maybe um, maybe not other religions, but in like more Norse mythology and Norse mythology, and you know, other other kind of you know mythological stories and so on and so forth. So I was just wondering. I, I think I think Peterson's kind of caught on the cusp of that question of whether or not you know Scripture and you know the Judeo-Christian religions are or you know judaism and christianity are um are, are merely kind of you know a, a sort of theological representation of profound psychological truths that humanity has discovered or whether they are actually the you know objectively real embodiments of those truths on a theological level does it does that make sense
0: mm-hmm. yeah um, he's yeah he's not a literalist in the way that paulson is and he who's far more literal. Yeah, he certainly doesn't seem to see them as literal and he he sees them yeah as much more like you say, psychological truths, mythological and um But he's but some there are points at which he seems open. Do you remember that did you hear that um that
1: conversation he had with Jonathan Pajot, where he was just kind of crying. I mean it was when he was unwell and he was sort of crying and he was sort of talking about the way, you know to narrow it down Well <laughs> he well he was he was lot. talking about I mean it was it was quite well, you know, it was all over Twitter and stuff. But he was like basically saying about how Christ is I mean, I think he was addressing this very issue and uh, I can't quite remember the exact phraseology he was using, but he was basically saying Christ is, you know, he is the kind of, you know, the highest embodiment of these religious ideas that, you know, humanity has developed. But he could also be he could also be the kind of objective embodiment of them as well for the reason that he's actually, you know, it's actually true. You know, essentially, Mm. those weren't the words he was using, but that's essentially what he was saying. He was was kind of like the way I was thinking about it is he was kind of saying, well, this is how it is on the vertical, sorry, on the horizontal level. And I really understand that very well, that sort of horizontal level, that psychological, um, anthropological level. But then is there a theological reality where there's a sort of intersection between the horizontal and the vertical and these two things come together? And that's actually really interesting because that's, exactly i think what happened for c.s lewis who was you know as, as i'm sure you know he was a scholar of english literature so he was aware of these things in a similar way like all these north myths and you know these are the things kind of animated his imagination as a child but what he came to see and this was partly through his um, relationship with with tolkien who was a friend of his what he came to see is that this wasn't just operating on that kind of horizontal level but it was it was operating in that way because there was a sort of vertical truth as well where these where these things come together and these things are not just you know you don't the reason you have like norse gods dying and and sacrificing themselves isn't because it's just some sort of psychological truth that humanity has discovered in this sort of jungian archetypal sense it's because there is an objective truth which somehow inhabits the hearts of human beings which they sometimes give voice to in, in, in myth and, and literature and story and that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, well, in after one of our podcasts, and I can't remember which we've done so many now, I suggested you watch the clip of Lewis and Tolkien from that movie about Tolkien's life. Oh yeah, I didn't do I, that. Okay, well, Tolkien says that, that to him. He says, don't you?" Lewis says to him, oh, I see, you, you, you've already accepted these other lies and myths because you've accepted the one big lie of, of Christ. And where Tolkien says, what you don't understand is that this is the one true myth. And he yeah. says it has the, the, something like the ring of primary creation. I can't remember the exact phrase. And he's saying that that is the one truth. And so that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, yeah there's the, the, with the Peterson options you're giving is one is that Jesus is kind of the ultimate realization. I'm tempted to say apotheosis, but that will confuse it. It's a kind of synthesis of all these ideas over time yeah. about sacrifice and martyrdom. And someone's realized it perfectly. And the other version, like you say, is that he actually was like that. And that's why it was so impressive yeah, which is coming at it from the other side, and yeah, that's the far more significant. Yeah, they're both pretty significant. but It's that's amazing. Far more significant.
1: I, I think that's an amazing thought. If I'm honest with you, I mean, I I just wish that Thank Peterson you. would would really. I mean, we've developed it together, but you know, yeah. I just, I just I think like Peterson, you know, I mean, it's it's like he's got to take that step, hasn't he? He's got to he's got to take the he's got to take the step into into the into the reality of this because he he recognizes the profundity of this. Like, and also the other thing I've been thinking is we've been. Reading these things and preparing them, it's like how this ties together, like so amazingly, you know, like all of these motifs, like they tie together in Christ, just incredibly well. And I don't, I don't, you know, if you were to look at them and actually confront them, you'd have to be, you'd have to be so cynical to just dismiss that and to say, well, you know, really, this is just a coincidence, you know, that from start to finish, the Old Testament seems to have all these sacrificial motifs, which, which just find their expression in christ in this unbelievably elegant way i mean something that i don't think we actually talked about on the last i'm, I'm not sure if we talked about on the last um podcast but you know in the fall in the narrative of the fall just to go back a bit you know when you have genesis three fifteen, this is often ta- talked about as the first gospel right so i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel Sorry, you shall bruise his heel, right? So that's the serpent he's speaking to. So her offspring, meaning Christ, you know, so he, that's Eve's offspring, meaning Christ, he shall bruise your head. So he'll destroy you, he's going to break your head. And you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. So, you know, that means that Eve's offspring will be in some way damaged by Satan, which people have taken to mean the crucifixion. So even. Even in chapter three, if you're open to it, there's, you know, this kind of Christological resonance immediately, right, right there. And then it just continues, you know, all the way through in this, in this unbelievable way.
0: There's another very controversial take on that, isn't there, which is the doctrine of the serpent seed. Do you know about that one?
1: No, tell me that.
0: It's also known as a jewel seed or two seed line doctrine which is a controversial and fringe Christian religious belief which explains the biblical account of the fall of man by stating that the serpent mated with Eve in the Garden of Eden and that the offspring of their union was Cain. The event resulted in the creation of two races of people, the wicked descendants of the serpent, who are destined for damnation, and the righteous descendants of Adam, who are destined to have eternal life. Yeah. The doctrine okay. frames human history as a conflict between these two races in which the descendants of Adam will eventually triumph over the descendants of the serpent. Uh, It's kind of you can see that is a horrific image, by the way, with the with the serpent. It's kind of like finding out your girlfriend's that with Russell Brand. But also, (laughs) if I may, but also, yeah, you can see how that the problem with that has been taken into some fairly dodgy racial areas that that uh, doctrine. So I hadn't heard of it.
1: Like like all Christian heresies, it twists it twists something which is true, which is this thing about, you know, they've got the line of the line of Abel later, um, Seth and the line of Cain. But again, I mean, it must be stated that this is not this is not primarily a racial line. I mean, it obviously has expressions through the nation of Israel, but it's not primarily a racial line. It's about our attitude towards God. You know, it's about whether or not we will worship the one true God or whether we will worship essentially ourselves and a pantheon of false gods. And, you know, I mean, not to be too boring, but, you know, that is if you take the Bible seriously, you know, it quite clearly says in chapter four that uh, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain so it doesn't say you know Eve knew the serpent and Adam and it was ambiguous you know so I think I think we can put pay to that quite quickly
0: yeah and the stuff about the li- I don't know whether to get into stuff about the lines or do the nod bit next which because we've talked about lines but we're ne- uh, which one which one do you want to do first because I've got to talk about the land of nod and then I've got to talk about the different lines of Cain and Abel
1: well I, I, I don't mind either let's, let's, let's about, go, go on, on. Well, let's talk about the lines. Seeing as we're already talking about it.
0: Yeah. Well, the lines. The only thing about that that I'm very puzzled by some of this. I mean, because the line from Cain, you get music, you yeah. get, which is um, Jubel, who uh, he was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe, and then you get Zilla also aboard with Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, which is like metallurgy, presumably, and other yeah. things like that. And then, and you also get farming. Um, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of. Oh no, hang on, that's the same one. Oh yeah. yeah, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. That's Jabal. So isn't that just farming, or is that nomadic farming, or what? I mean, they're in tents, I suppose. So I don't really understand the lines. Like, why some of these weird things? Come, what's so bad about you know, m- metallurgy or music? But <laughs> but some people have said it's it's to do with urbanisation, and that well, when he goes to nod, maybe I'll bring them together because he because yeah. after the line. The, and the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him then Ken, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden and of course we have the Steinbeck novel East of Eden and all these other things and we still have not, la, nodding off and a pun on land of Nod and all this kind of thing we, we use these puns for sleep and so on but the land of Nod people have all kinds of different views on what it was whether he was just away from it was an ungodly place or it was a more urban place and Cain went there and developed cities Paulson points out that um cities mean a concentration of sin and so all human progress was tainted by Cain so you get these cities and it's sort of impressive in one way but it's actually tainted by Cain's sin and he's over in Nod doing bad stuff Uh, you know so it depends what you think Nod is and what what you think it signifies yeah and then what these lines signify yeah
1: so I mean just take the first part first I mean I think that uh Pawson is sort of partly right but as um as is often the case he he sort of overstates it slightly so i mean the way that i would see this is that um, this isn't necess- this isn't really about urbanization this is about um, being human and god's common grace right so i don't think it's i don't think that it's the right way to look at this and and say well these things are bad because they were founded by cain uh, this cain is a founder of um, a civilization right so uh, and and civilization is marked by culture so you know like architecture and music and farming or whatever it might be but it's also marked by sin which is you know rebellion against god but but the the amazing thing about it and again it's just it's just obviously true is that um human beings even when they rebel against god still are enabled by god's common grace to to have culture to have families and to build a world that works and to actually build a work that world that works really well and to produce amazing things so that. That would be, just to, um, just to repeat that, that phrase, that would be a, a sort of extrapolation of the concept of God's common grace. So, you know, God's special or saving grace would be like, you know, when God reveals himself in Christ and saves people from eternal damnation through Christ. But, but God's common grace is just his, his common goodness to humanity. And if you think about, um, if you think about uh, the humanities as a kind of subject area, It's kind of a good way of thinking about that because the humanities are just an expression of what human beings are. So they're capable of creating art and literature or whatever it might be, uh, painting, uh, buildings, and so on. But we're also capable of of great sin and evil as well. But even where there is a. So this is where I think Paulson's a bit too negative. Even where there's a massive concentration of sin, like in a very, very sinful place, you can still have a functioning city and culture and people having families and there being law and order and all of these kind of things so i would see that this is a kind of expression of uh, of god's common grace uh, to humanity that's the way i would see this
0: okay interesting yeah, It's a lot more generous than, than old paulson there and yeah i mean have...
1: I, in fact i would say almost the opposite to Paul. like you know there's, there's i mean you could argue that god wants concentrations of people because of the the mandate right to to, to fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth. So God is in favor of concentrations of people. Whereas the implication of what Paulson's saying is like, you know, the countryside is a more godly place because there are fewer people there. But I would argue against that. I don't think that's the right way of thinking about it. You know, ultimately, we're not, we're not as, as Christians, we're not people who, who think that humanity is a cancer upon the earth. We think people are fundamentally good. So yeah you might get a greater concentration of sin in in a city but you also get a greater concentration of of culture and a greater possibility for for well you know righteousness and and people worshiping god together so you know
0: yeah i I do sometimes get the impression a person has a more negative view of humanity if when we get on to noah maybe next time it's it's sort of he talks about you know obviously god deciding to get rid of all humans and he he does talk about you know the world being a bad place and people being bad quite a lot i have noticed that yeah. It's certainly one fairly strict view. But yeah, it, it says um, Cain knew it. So moving on from the East of it says Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. Uh, so we, we know some famous Enoch's. When he built a city, mm. he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born, it goes into the whole line. But that's the city part, he, that he built a city. Yeah. And some people have even said, so you know that, so Cain and Abel, people have pointed out, appear in other texts apart from Genesis. So some people see it as a sort of archetypal story and Abel as the first murder victim and the first martyr, Cain, the first murderer. And there's an interesting one where modern scholars typically view the stories of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel to be about the development of civilization during the age of agriculture, not the beginnings of man. So that's another reading, obviously not really a Christian reading, more a sort of yeah. just sort of objectively scholarly reading or something. So that, that is going on there. Yeah. Um, and it goes into all the lines, which I don't think we have to go into, which we've talked about anyway, the, the line of music and metallurgy. Yeah. And then I mean, gets down to... It la-
1: Lamech is in, important, I think. Yeah. That's so what I was about to get oh into. Oh, sorry. It, get on i yeah.
0: Don't worry, Jamie. I've got it so yeah, covered. You've got, you got it. So um, I'm a professional, as, as uh, Andrew Tate says. Um, Lamech said... It, well, this, the strange bit of Lamech is that it's going through all the lines and it, it goes, the sister of Tuber Cain was Neymar. Full stop. Then it just goes, Lamech said to his wives, which is an extraordinary <laughs> literary device. I mean, talk about like postmodern literature. You've just skipped, you know, because I've read all these sort of weird postmodern literature books that kind of change the form of writing. But that's a hell of a jump in, in maybe I shouldn't say hell, that's a heck of a jump in writing just to go, Lamech said to his wives, because you've been doing this line going through presumably hundreds of years. Then you actually, what you're doing is leaping to a specific scene mm-hmm. with Lamech, which yeah. is an extraordinary thing to do because you know, you, you've, got a very, you've got a very narrow... There is a literary the, the device thing called Réci and histoire, which is about the content versus the way you tell the story. Yeah. You take a great writer like Thomas Bernard in the, a book called The Loser, one of the great novels. He spends the whole time saying, I thought as I entered the inn. So the forward motion in the story is a man just entering an inn and mm-hmm. then a few other things happen at the end. But for the vast majority of the book, he's remembering stuff as he enters the inn. So this is a, a literary device. Mm. It's a great book. I, I'm aware this podcast gets a bit heavy, by the way. Yes. When you said before, it reminds me of Heidegger's onto theological subject. Sorry, I was thinking the few people that have said like this podcast gets quite heavy at times. I was thinking <laughs> that's one of those times. Uh, anyway,
1: the, the onto theological critique is the, one of the most important sort of intellectual critiques of, of religion there is. So,
0: But you admit <laughs> it's not a typical thing at on every yeah. podcast. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, it's not on any, uh, it's not on Alistair Campbell's podcast, <laughs> that. Yeah. But um, um, anyway. My point is, you've started with quite a sort of narrow story of, you know, Cain and Abel, this happened, then he killed his brother. And that's sort of quite, you know, the actions happening in a fairly literal way in real time. That could happen pretty quickly. But then you suddenly go through generations and generations. Then you suddenly skip to Lamech said to his wives, which I find crazy, unless someone can tell me I'm I'm interpreting this wrong. Anyway, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77fold. So he announces he's suddenly killed someone just like Cain. But why would? And how can he announce it himself? Unlike whereas it was God that gave the curse on Cain, or gave the sort of protection of Cain. And, how can, and why is it 77 for? Why is it so much more?
1: Yeah, so, yeah, great question. So I think uh, lots of stuff about Lamech. So verse 19, Lamech took two wives. So this is um, the beginning of a kind of polygamous culture, which is a departure from from what God intends to be, you know, in the beginning with, with uh, Adam and Eve. There's, you know, lots right. of... So
0: another thing about the line of Cain is polygamy. It comes yeah. from it as yeah, well yeah, as yeah. music yeah. and all these other terrible... Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And you could also see that as... Um, you know, when it says about, uh, you know, your husband ruling over you, it's sort of a, it's a it's an outworking of a husband ruling over you, I think. So. So, I mean, I've seen before people saying, oh, you know, the Bible's got all sorts of different things about marriage in it. You know, it, it has, uh, you know, polygamous and monogamous and blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't really, if you read it in context, you know,
0: they're not advocated.
1: No, yeah, yeah. Polygamy. Yeah. You might describe somebody being polygamous, but it doesn't mean that that's what's being being put forward or advocated as you say it's clear that adam and eve is god's template and this is a departure from that template as humanity degrades and descends into sin and that's the point about lamech is he's a he's a continuation you know he's a sort of furthering of of the sin of cain you know this is what happens as people continue to distance themselves from god and his ways they get gradually worse and worse and that's the whole point is that he's worse than cain you know so not only is he a polygamist and you know he's speaking to these women in a in a quite a um, well I don't know like quite a like a rapper almost you know like a sort of you, what would you call it like a kind of Patriarchal, authoritarian, authoritarian. authoritarian. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's you know, it's not good. I mean, we do make jokes about this kind of thing, but it's not good to treat to treat your wife or to treat your you know women or you know in in a way which is which is uh, degrading. And then um, yeah, of course, he's killing people and so on. And then the so this here is a you know this is one of the things important to to know about scripture is that it uses numbers and, and numbers have sig- symbolic significance. So if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77fold. So seven is a kind of perfect number. So it means like. complete so if you have like something being seven you know sevenfold that means it's you know kane's revenge was sevenfold so it was complete but my revenge is 77 fold which is like you know it's like complete times complete if you see what i mean and then just one more thing on that which i think is quite interesting is uh so again so just round that out so it's way worse that's the point it's way worse than kane's revenge i'm so much more hardcore than him you know that kind of thing like you know he's boasting but the interesting thing just to bring it to somewhere else It's like in I did a sermon on this recently which is why I was thinking about it in Matthew chapter 18 I think it's that uh, Peter asked Christ how many times should we forgive as many as seven times and Christ says no, I don't tell you seven times I tell you 70 times and in some translations they translate that as 70 times seven so there's actually a kind of there's definitely a, re- there's definitely a reference to, to Lamech and this, this, this thing here because you've got seven and then seven and then you've got 77 fold so y- so Christ is clearly referencing Genesis four time um, verse twenty four so it's getting mixed up with the numbers there, so anyway, the point being that he's like reversing this kind of this web of vengeance and violence and things like that through the, through the generous practice of grace and forgiveness, so there's that as well and I think it's Matthew chapter 18 um, as well so, there's, so so there's that there so yeah, so that's some thoughts on that
0: All right, very interesting um, that explains the seventy seven fold to some degree and Here we we carry on, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, and at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, which is pretty much where Cain and Abel ends, and that line, Jamie, since last time, I have an email on, actually. Oh, yeah. So this is an evolving series, so I asked what that meant last time, and we weren't sure, and I have two completely opposite interpretations. Go so the, the line, uh, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, and Lord in capitals, meaning Yahweh therefore, because that's, that's what it means every time it says Lord in this version in capitals. Yeah. So Kevin writes, Dear Nick, the fact that people began to call on the name of the Lord during the days of Enosh was a sign of the separation that had grown between humankind and the Creator. Until then, people had called him Father, as Jesus says we should, Luke 11.2. Now they had to address him formally as strangers. Very, very interesting. And then he goes on to have, say, um, praise you and the, what we're doing with this podcast. Not praise it in a light way, God of course, but, um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? And um, he's, he says he's goes, gone back to church. So that's great. great. So that's thanks good. for that, Kevin. Yeah. But, um, but I have to contrast that with Pawson, right? Who says the exact, say, the exact opposite. So he said, uh, in, because of Seth's line, man began to call on the name of Yahweh. And he's saying this is a good thing, uh, Paulson, The fact that that they start to think of God in, in that in that in that way, uh, you know, in the in the Yahweh way, which he he uses the word always. Someone else has sent me a really good uh, version of Yahweh if I can find it, which I might because I was going to read this out at the end. But they have another good uh, translation. Oh well, I can't find it. But um, yeah. oh yeah, I think it's here. Yeah, he he yeah. It, there was a little translation that Robbo offered on Twitter or X which is he will be, is, and always was. That was his that was his version of Yahweh. And and uh, Pawson's is just the word always. So Pawson seems to be saying they sort of had this great understanding of the Lord now from from Seth, whereas Kevin is writing to us there saying, no, it's actually that they became separated and it became more formal. Any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I mean, thanks, Kevin. And that's great. I'm really pleased you're going back to church. Uh, I, I, but sadly, I, I definitely go with, with Pawson here. Um, it seems to be the case that, I mean, if you read this chapter, you know, the whole way through, you've got the, you know, you've got the godly Abel disappearing when he's killed by Cain and then the the whole of the civilization kind of developing. And then within the midst of this civilization, you then have Seth being born. And it, he's, it's kind of like a holy seed being planted in the midst of a corrupt civilization. And, you know, again, Seth is... In this story, Seth is an image of Christ. I mean, Christ ultimately comes from the line of Seth. You know, in the, if you look at the genealogy in the book of Adam, for um, the book of um, Luke, you know, it, Christ, Christ is traced back to Seth and beyond to, to Adam. So um, the point being that this is a kind of picture. So you can almost see it. It's like Christ being born in Bethlehem in the midst of a world which is not interested in God and, and his ways. It's, it's a similar thing here. So Seth is being born. Uh, in the midst of this this civilization, which is degrading and and um, falling apart because it's distancing itself from God, and I see that as all one kind of thing. So you have um, uh, Eve bearing Seth, Seth boring Enosh, and then the godly line being established. And it's at that time, so when those people were born, so through them, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that's the, way, that's the way that I see it. It's, it's the people are, you know, the worship of the true, proper worship of God is being established. I mean, the question of why it's the Lord, why it's you know that word Yahweh or Jehovah, as David Paulson says, it's definitely not, <laughs> is, a, is another question. But I, I think it's it's be, you know if, it, it's it's not because people are getting it wrong. It's because they're getting it right, in my opinion and i don't like i don't like and calling it always i just don't think that's right it's to do with existence the word yahweh it's, it's thomas aquinas understood you know he 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 understood that you know very clearly and and you know he he called god he who is he he i mean you know roughly speaking that's the way that's the way he translated that that word he who is like he who has existence within himself uh, always i just think it's, it's yeah, it just has a different slightly different connotation slightly sort of blander connotation and i don't think it works in a literary sense either so
0: okay well maybe we should look to robo on this who, who tweeted about it saying well done on the genesis podcast i really enjoyed it and he says and he, he's coming from an orthodox jewish perspective and he just wants to clarify a few things he said it's great that you're learning hebrew and he talks about it's hebrew not, for a bit. it's
1: not going quickly by the way just oh say, okay <laughs> still still working on the alphabet it's pretty hard
0: Right. It's too long. Yeah, he does say it's a strange language. It's too long to read it all, but yeah, he, he translates it as a Yahweh. He doesn't use Yahweh because the Orthodox Jews never say it by name, but he said, can be best translated as a compound word that combines future, present, and past forms of the verb to be. I translate it literally as he will be, is, and always was. This, this sense of the Almighty being across time and space is extremely prevalent in the grammar used in the Hebrew text. And then he goes on and says, an appreciation of the two main names, the one referred to above, and Elohim. So Orthodox Jews people don't say... Elohim, because they don't even want to say the H bit, so they say a K, just so you, that's why that, that's there, is also, that's my other reading on that, is also vital in understanding what is being said, the four letter name is a reflection of his infinite symmetry, the aspect which resides outside and encircles the physical universe, Elohim, which is not a plural sense of God, as is often misinterpreted, it means literally God of all powers, is a reflection of his finite symmetry, which resides in all things in the universe, in every atom, uh, the very way that atoms work. It's unsurprising to me that the most common age of protagonist death in the Torah is 137. It's also Abraham's age at the binding of Isaac, without doubt the most important passage in the entire book, one which we read every single day. Because we talked about numbers a little bit before, he's talking about this, the significance of this 137. And he, this is just answering a question we raised last time, and it's a bit dense, is that um, he thinks there are hidden meanings behind these numbers. He says that the age 930 links Adam to King David for example. So there's these ages that people live to like Adam and Noah and, then, and there's, there's reasons for them that I, they're very complicated anyway that I, don't, that I don't really know about. But that was just a little update from last time. So I think we've pretty much, we've pretty much come to the end of K-Nable. There's, there's, and it has filled the time so that's good. We only need to, that means we can do Noah next time. Yeah. But maybe a few things we might have missed It's just, yeah, what, well, I think I've talked about that actually the different interpretation of it, how it occurs in other places other than just genesis i mean what do you make of that this idea that the versions of this appear in all kinds of places and that so the an academic theologian here joseph blenkinsop holds that cain and Abel are symbolic rather than real like almost all of the person's places and stories in primeval history the first 11 chapters of genesis they're mentioned nowhere else in the hebrew bible a fact that suggests the history is a late composition added to genesis to serve as an introduction just how late is a matter for dispute the history may be as late as the Hellenistic period. Any thoughts on that?
1: Well, I mean, I don't really want to wade into the academic debate because I just don't know very much about it. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't see that they need to be mentioned, you know, over and over again in, in the scripture in order to be taken seriously. I mean, they're certainly certainly mentioned in in um, the New Testament, so. Um, you know, that's kind of that's kind of good enough for me. I just I, I, look, Nick. I mean, yeah, I think uh,
0: Jesus says the blood of the righteous has been spilled from Abel to Zacharias. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, those like. he does, and so it's they,
1: also in the Book of Hebrews as well, um, but um, and in the Book of James. Uh, but the this whole thing about like the academic way of approaching things, you know, and I'm not against you know academia. You know, I've got I've got a PhD. Um, you know, I'm not, I've spent a lot of time in that world. Um, not in the area of biblical studies, you know, in the area of theology, which is different. They're related. Um, it was area. on
0: a Metallica, wasn't it, in your PhD? <laughs> 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 Into Sandman. Just to be just to be clear,
1: no, it was not. It was definitely not. It's just that that's a that's a um, that's a side interest. Anyway, uh, the point is, is like you know. So one thing that scholars posit about the you know the early books of the bible is that they were all written by different people right so there's like four sources like jedp different different authors and they were kind of stitched together and you have Peterson says things like this as well i mean he never could sort of comes out and says it but he says you know these are fragments fragments you know and and we don't know that we don't know the full story and all this kind of stuff you know so he's kind of that he's alluding to those theories but on, on the other hand, uh, these are theories which you know. I have done some. I've done biblical studies. I did. A, I've got an MA in biblical studies, and so I've, I, it's not like I don't know anything about this. But it's, it's like it's, it's all speculative. It's just people speculating about what things might be because of the kind of vocabulary is used and the sort of different theological emphasis that are that are in place and so on. But if you see a single Divine hand behind it all, there's a sort of, uh, as I was saying earlier, sort of astonishing coherence to the whole thing, which makes perfect sense. So I don't, so a lot of it depends on how you. What your starting point is, you know, what's your presupposition? Is your presupposition that this is simply a human book, which is somehow, you know, reflective of these sort of archetypes which human beings have developed, which in itself would be a pretty astonishing thing? I mean, it's hardly a sort of it's almost supernatural in itself to say that humanity is sort of got this kind of archetypal. archetypal unconscious which it's it's all of it all of us you know all us human beings we all have access to this thing and it's kind of taken shape in these myths just almost coincidentally you know which would be amazing in itself you know uh, so you sort of start from that viewpoint or you know i'm not saying these are the only options or you say well you know maybe that archetypal unconscious maybe that is real, but it's actually real because there's some kind of theological or ultimate reality behind it. And the Bible is actually reflective of that. You know, that these other texts, when you look at them, they may bear some resemblance, but they don't have the same kind of coherence and power and enduring power as as the scripture. And that that would be my position. I don't want to preempt the conversation on the flood, but the flood would be another example of that, where you have all these other myths about a global flood. Now, that might be because... A global flood really happened or it might be because there's some kind of archetypal unconscious reality that human beings are are tapping into but i think the the you know when you look at scripture when you look at the description of the flood it's far more sort of plausible and resonant and deep in the bible than it is in you know like the enuma elish or wherever where they just you know the accounts seem like far more sort of mythological and silly you know because the gods are like they can't sleep so they they deluge the world to kill all the humans because the humans are making too much noise the Bible's not like that. It's far, far more serious.
0: I think that's a, some brilliant points there. And I like that you've uh, done a teaser for our next yeah. episode. Yeah. yeah. Next week <laughs> on Genesis Explored, the flood. Yeah. Nick rifles through his notes and tries to operate the <laughs> software. The recording goes wrong again. And Reverend Jamie Franklin comes in with the knowledge. Yeah, it, it's so. next time we'll do Noah and the flood but, and, and the and the prelude to the flood. But you're very right. I just felt I had to put that in because... You know, I do not want anyone at home to say, well, it could just be this academic reading or this, you know, Cain and Abel appears in other places. And I just saw it today and I thought, I'll add that in. Yeah. But you're right, it is infinitely banal compared to the other version to think that, for example, here's a line from Wikipedia. It's been seen as a depiction of nomadic conflict, the struggle for land and resources and divine favor between nomadic herders and sedentary farmers. I mean, if Cain and Abel is just about the nomadic herders versus yeah. the sedentary farmers. That yeah. is fairly banal isn't it it's and I boring don't it's, it like that. yeah
1: it's just boring isn't it it's a boring way of reading the text and i'm not uh, you know uh, and it's fine look people i don't want to insult people in biblical studies because you know i know lots of i've got a lot of friends who are in biblical studies nick you know some of my best uh, friends some of my the best friends scholars. are really into <laughs> biblical studies but you know uh, but you yeah. know it's to me i don't to me there's a there's a danger with biblical studies which is that it kills the it kills the text it's like doing you know the the roman catholic theologian great theologian Hans van Balthasar said that you can only do an autopsy on a dead body you know referring to scripture like scripture is a living thing and if you try if you if you dichotomize it too much and if you you know um if you chop it up and look at the individual bits and you become obsessed with them then you lose like the living spirit of the thing you you can't you can't take it as the whole piece that it is, and it becomes this very sort of pedantic, you know. Well, you know, Exodus five twenty seven B. You know, what what original Hebrew word was in the text? You know, and how does that affect our understanding of, you know, ancient Near Eastern cultures in in you know six fifty six B C or whatever? You know, it's 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 like you're losing you're losing the point if you do it like that. See what yeah. I mean?
0: absolutely cain killed abel and some of these biblical studies people are in danger of killing the magic of the bible yeah jamie that's all i've got to say that's right i
1: mean you know i hasten to add that systematic theology can obviously be abused massively and it is nick most of the yes, time and i nowadays. second
0: that without knowing what you mean yeah that's um, <laughs> true <laughs> um just also, listen well, to this
1: podcast like if anyone's interested in biblical studies and systematic theology they should just listen to us nick that's the ar- that's here. the answer and you
0: have me as the everyman layman just wading through it, trying to understand. And we have the expert. It's, it's a great format. It's, People it's, are already loving it.
1: We've got a monopoly on this, Nick.
0: No. Absolutely. Someone yeah. called it genuinely enlightening, the last one, Jamie. And it's that good. is largely due to you. I'm going to say no, no. largely, uh, maybe even solely, but it's certainly... Well, again, I set the thing up, so I'm going to say largely due to you. But, um... <laughs> Hopefully you'll come back and do the, the yeah, Noah one. for sure, and, yeah. And um, I'm where this. can people find you once again? Obviously you do the Irreverent Podcast, which I should have said at the start again, but I didn't. It's okay,
1: Sorry, Yeah, so Irreverent Podcast, Irreverent Faith and Current Affairs. What is it called? Yeah, it is called that. Irreverent Faith and it Current is. Affairs. Um, yeah, it's uh, just everything's on our website, com. Irreverent with a D, not with a T. It's a pun on the word irreverent, or the words irreverent and reverend. So irreverent... It's
0: such a good pun. It actually messes up the word irreverent for you because your brain suddenly goes is it irreverent for a second once you're a hardcore irreverent listener it actually exactly. ruins language for you that's how yeah, good it is that's
1: how good it is. i hate to add that my co-host tom thought of it not me which is a shame um, and other people have subsequently said that they've thought of it and wanted to use it as a podcast but that's a really interesting example of the archetypal unconscious functioning there because like we've created this word and then other people have independently thought of it And thought, we'll start a podcast and then Googled it and realized, um, sorry, there's already a a podcast called Irreverent, so you can't do that. Uh, So anyway, so IrreverentPod.com so that's and I'm on Twitter and by the way since we last spoke I think it was because you criticised me for having this obscure Twitter handle which had nothing to my name Criticised so, is strong well that's okay I don't mind a criticism um, I've changed it so now I'm Jamie oh. Franklin on Twitter and I'm just at Jamie Franklin 40 the reason I chose 40 Nick is because it's one of those other symbolic numbers which speaks of completeness so I thought oh you know 40's available so I'll do that so hmm. at Jamie Franklin 40 and that's about that's about it really in terms of you just you know that's, that's where you can find me
0: Because you're not even 40, are you? So it's not your age, not a midlife crisis. I'm less than 40.
1: I'm less than 40. And that would age, you know, if you do your
0: age on Twitter, you're a fool, aren't you? Because... That would be terrible, yeah. You can't change it it every year. Yeah, Yeah, famously. (laughs) Famously, time advances. (laughs) At Jamie Franklin 40, on X, as it's now called, of course. we have seen it advance beyond even called Twitter. So that's on X, an irreverent podcast. And yeah, look out for our next one. Yep. where we tackle Noah and the flood, all being well, God willing, we'll be back and doing that. Yeah. This is and great, course, isn't it?
1: I mean, I, honestly, Nick, I think I'm learning loads doing this. And um, I, I hope, yeah, from you and also from the other things I'm reading. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, it just shows me, I'm so encouraged by it because it just shows me like how deep these things actually are. And even just going back to the Pizza lectures and listening to those and sort of thinking through his engagement with it, you know, is is it's it's, it's, in, it's an incredible thing, and I hope people are I hope people are paying attention to this and in, engaging with the same resources because I think you'll see like how profound these texts really are. And you know, and I would also encourage people listening to this to just literally go back to the, the stories themselves and just literally read them through. You know, especially in the light of these these conversations, and just just think about them. You know, because they're they're incredible stories.
0: Absolutely. And people really are doing that. And just quickly, I want to thank people for their reviews as well on the, on the Apple app. Someone says, world class. This podcast is epic enough to prompt my first ever review. Thank you, Nick. And please run a series with Rev. Jamie Franklin on each book of the Bible. I started reading it when you embarked, having recently refound my faith. Keep it up and stay based. What an amazing review from yeah. Monrod mm-hmm. SJ. I don't know how you say that, but it was a brilliant review. Thank you very Great. much. Genuinely enlightening cab passenger. The episode looking at Genesis with Rev Franklin was an absolute masterpiece. Nick is doing God's work here, spreading the word to a wide audience in an entertaining and accessible way. Please keep going. Rev JF, this is from Fat, Drunk drunk and Stupid, says, more Rev J. Franklin. That was excellent. And Jenny G, well, I hate to read out praise myself, as you know, but it says, (laughs) Nick is very charming, funny and down to earth. Interesting guest. I really enjoyed the latest podcast discussion on Genesis. Great podcast. So, so many people have praised i won't really the ones pra- praising me solely but so many people have praised the genesis ones with you james so people are really liking great. it great and i just want to say with that in mind if you want to support the podcast sorry to, sh- to do the old plug here but please go to buymeacoffee.com slash nick dixon because uh, you know we, we employ someone on the podcast it's quite hard to afford all this and we're doing it very diy for now so buymeacoffee.com slash nick dixon to support the current thing so yeah. to speak And we'll be back with Jamie soon and we'll be back with another episode next week. But thank you very much once again, Jim. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.